0: Logan Way, Curly for his roguish repartee, and Roosevelt for saving the working man from the ravages of capitalism. Connolly's parents, John J. Connolly, a Gillette employee for fifty years, and his stay-in-the-background mother, Bridget T. Kelly, lived in the project until John was twelve years old. In 1952, the family moved up to City Point, which was Southie's best address because it looked out to sea from the far end of the promontory. Connolly's father was known as Galway John, after the Irish county of his birth. He made the church, South Boston, and his family the center of his life. Somehow the father of three pulled the money together to send John to the Catholic school in the Italian North End, Columbus High. It was like traveling to a foreign country, and John Jr. joked about a commute that required cars, buses, trains— the Southy instinct for patriotic duty and a public payroll also led Connolly's younger brother, James, into law enforcement. He became a respected agent with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, a subdued version of his swaggering older brother. The Connollys and Bulgers reached adolescence in a clean, well-lit place by the sea, surrounded by acres of parks and football and baseball fields and basketball courts. Sports were king. Old Harbor had intact families— Free ice cream on the Fourth of July, and stairwells that were clubhouses, about 30 kids to a building. The 27 acre project was the middle ground between City Point, with its ocean breezes and lace curtains, and the more ethnically diverse Lower End, with its small box shaped houses that sat on the edge of truck routes leading to the factories and garages and taverns along the Fort Point Channel. To this day, the neighborhood consistently maintains the highest percentage of long term residents in the city reflecting a historic emphasis on staying put rather than getting ahead that engenders fierce pride. As South Boston bowed slightly to gentrification along its untapped waterfront in the late 1990s, its city councilor sought to reaffirm traditional values by outlawing French doors on cafes and roof decks on condos facing the sea. The us-versus-them mentality at the core of Southie life goes even deeper than its Irish roots. Before the first major wave of Irish immigrants washed over the peninsula after the Civil War, an angry petition to the central government had arrived at City Hall in 1847 complaining about the lack of municipal services. It would be a couple decades before the famine immigrants who stumbled ashore in Boston as the potato blight racked Ireland from 1845 to 1850 made their way to the rolling grass knolls of what was then called Dorchester Heights. The famine had reduced Ireland's population by one-third, with one million dying of starvation and two million fleeing for their lives. Many of them headed to Boston as the shortest distance between two points and spilled into the fetid waterfront tenements of the North End. By the 1870s, they were grateful to leave a slum where three of every ten children died before their first birthday. The newly-arrived Irish Catholics took immediately to Southie's grievance list with outside forces. Indeed, it became holy writ as the community coalesced around church and family, forming a solid phalanx against those who did not understand their ways. Over the decades since then, nothing has galvanized Southie's more than a perceived slight by an outsider who would change the way things are. In the Irish Catholic hegemony that came to be— A mixed marriage was not just Catholic and Protestant. It could also be an Italian man and an Irish woman. Although Boston had been an established city for two centuries by the time the bedraggled famine immigrants arrived, South Boston did not become a tight-knit Irish community until after the Civil War, when newly created businesses brought steady employment to neighborhood residents. In the war's aftermath, the peninsula's population increased by one-third to its present level of 30,000. Irish workers began to settle in the lower end to take jobs in shipbuilding and the railroad that spoke to the era. Soon local banks and Catholic churches opened their doors, including St. Monica's, the Sunday destination of Whitey Bulger's younger brother Billy, and his tag-along pal John Connolly. In the latter part of the nineteenth century, most men worked on Atlantic Avenue unloading freight ships. Women trekked across the Broadway Bridge after supper to the city's financial district, where they scrubbed floors and emptied wastebaskets, returning home over the same bridge around midnight. By the end of the century, the Irish Catholic foothold was such that residents congregated according to their Irish county of origin. Galway was A and B streets.